Assalamu alaikum listeners, you're listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas, a podcast centered on giving a platform to Muslim women in academia. I'm your host, Sabah Fatma. Each episode, we talk to an amazing academic Muslima on all things Muslim, women, and academic. Please recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Episodes come out every two weeks. This episode, we are talking to Dr. Kayla Wheeler. Dr. Wheeler is an assistant professor of area and global studies and digital studies at Grand Valley State University. She received her PhD in religious studies from University of Iowa. She also has a master's in religious studies from University of Iowa and MA in Islam in the West from Queen's, uh, Queen Mary University of London and an MA in bioethics from Case Western Reserve University. Salaam alaikum, Kayla. Walaikum salam. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. So obviously you have a PhD in religious studies, but first up, I got to ask you, how did you end up with so many masters? You have one in religious studies, one in Islam in the West, and a third one in bioethics. I mean, how does that happen? It's a really random story. Um, like m- most first-gen students, um, I started off undergrad as a pre-med major and quickly realized that I was not good at math and as much as I like science, I could not make it through organic chemistry. Um, so for me, bioethics was like kind of a marriage of my interest in religion, but then also getting the medical side. Um, and as I was doing bioethics, I did a clinical ethics program. So I got to shadow doctors and healthcare professionals. Um, and I got to meet so many different Muslim patients throughout the, from throughout the world. I became more and more interested and in just learning how people practice and experience Islam differently. So that led me to Queen Mary. I always wanted to live abroad. Um, and it was a great program, a history program where we got to focus on contemporary topics and then back to the Midwest where I'm originally from for my degrees at Iowa. Wow. That is that is an amazing journey to be through. I mean, wonderful life experiences to accumulate. It was interesting. I don't know if I would do it again. So <laughs> I didn't really have my first job with a nice paycheck until I turned 29. But I do have life experience and I've got to see the world, which was great. Yeah, that's that is pretty amazing. So like I also saw online that you curate the hashtag uh, Black Islam syllabus. Um, so I teach Islam. Um, I, I teach Islamic thought and then I also teach Islam and politics. Um, but what is, uh, you know, hashtag black Islam syllabus and how is it different from uh, other Islam, uh, Islam syllabuses uh, or syllabi that are out in the U.S.? Yeah. So the black Islam syllabus is something I started uh, in December 2015 um, and was inspired by Professor Najiba Saeed um, and the Muslim Arc, um, which is a nonprofit organization that deals with community discussions internally with Muslims about combating anti-Black racism and xenophobia and other things. Um, and so I noticed that there was a gap in a lot of classes about how Muslims are discussed. Um, If you take an Islamic studies class, or at least this was my experience um, in grad school and in undergrad, if you talk about black Muslims, it's usually towards the end of the semester and just a day or two, Mm -hmm. usually just the nation and Malcolm, and then that's it. Um, And doing my own research and taking my um, qualifying exams. So 
proving that I was a good scholar in my doctoral program, I noticed how central Black Muslims have always been to the story of Islam, but that wasn't being reflected in the classroom. And to be honest, with a lot of scholarship. Um, so for me, it was a way to highlight what people had been doing since the very beginning. So looking at the history of Black Muslims, both on the African continent, as well as throughout the world, as well as their contributions to Islam. So um, I think it's up to like 35 pages now. Um, I'm in the second stage of the project. I'm um, working to slowly build a website that's a bit more user-friendly and accessible. Um, so inshallah, that will be done over the summer. Wow. And we'll launch that. Yeah, that, that, is, that is so true, what you're saying about the kind of syllabi that uh, we do teach, um, or uh, the ones that I have seen, that, you know, it's, it becomes a footnote when... Uh, the African-American experience or the black experience uh, uh, is central uh, to to Islam in America and, and on uh, the African subcontinent. So I think a lot of people don't realize, um, my students are shocked when I say that the largest ethnic slash racial category of Muslims in America are actually black Muslims. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they're always surprised by that. And I'm always surprised that they're surprised by that. <laughs> Um, it, has that been your experience uh, when you when you uh, talk about the centrality of you know the black experience to Islam in America? Are people surprised by by that uh, uh, placement? I think they're surprised, but I think they're also surprised to hear about the influence that Muslims just in black Muslims in general have had on the history of Islam. Like if we look at Bilal mm-hmm. and his <laughs> being one of the companions, uh, we've seen. To kind of see Black Islam as being a more recent thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's great to talk about the United States and what Black American Muslims have done, but there have been Muslims who were Black or of African descent since the 600s. And I think a lot of that um, decentering Blackness, part of it has to do with anti-Black racism, uh, viewing what Black people do as not normal or not normative, um, and wanting to create this one unified singular image of what Islam is and should be. But I mean, just in the United States, there's no way you can listen to music like rap or jazz or blues and not hear a Black Muslim influence. Right. So I mean, okay, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but a couple of things you said there kind of kind of struck out. First, our listeners may not know what, who Bilal is or Hazrat Bilal was. He was a companion of the Prophet and uh, the Prophet chose him to say the first public call to prayers in in uh, Medina, which was the city that the Prophet had migrated to and established uh, as something central within Islam. And Bilal was uh, was the person chosen uh, to call Muslims towards uh, towards prayer. So, um, and then also I myself am a Shia, and amongst Shias we have Imams, and many of the Imams married women uh, from. Um, uh, the African continent. And, you know, recently has there been a more open discussion of that? Or what does that mean uh, in terms of what does it mean for us as Shias in America to uh, to explore that history um, as opposed to as opposed to like sort of like, again, have it as a footnote. So that was one thing that uh, just struck out to me. But then uh, also you said that oftentimes people think of when they think of what is you know what is normative islam or what is like this unified understanding of islam they are not thinking 
they're not thinking black Muslim Americans. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I will honestly just chalk it up to anti-black racism, but it also has to do a lot with what you see in the media. If you ask a person, what is the first image of a Muslim that comes to their mind? It's usually going to be a brown person. If it's a man, it's someone with a beard. If it's a woman, it's going to be someone with a black abaya or a niqab on. So the media, as well as academia, plays an important role in creating these images, um, but they also have a responsibility of pushing back against some of those images. And so I see fashion as being a great space where that's happening, um, both at the local level, what I study, the history of Black Muslim fashion in the United States, but you're also seeing it at a more national and international level with Black Muslim models like Halima Adin getting onto the scene and challenging what it means to be Muslim um, in the 21st century. Right. I, I do think that there is a sense of moral righteousness sometimes amongst immigrant communities. Um, and I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm Maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I do sometimes encounter like a self of moral righteousness about who owns Islam. Mm-hmm. And you know, somehow uh, immigrant communities have the sense of ownership over Islam um, as opposed to deferring to, you know, black Muslims who've always been part of the American fabric. And I've always found that indicative of, yeah, anti-black racism, uh, for sure. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, speaking of of, of black Muslims uh, in America or influential black Muslims in America, I saw that uh, one of your projects, uh, you know, was about retracing the steps of Malcolm X in Boston. So we're recording this interview on February 21st, 2020. So today is like exactly 55 years ago, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. And Malcolm X, like, he is an incredibly influential figure, both within uh, within uh, American history, but also uh, within Muslim communities. I think he uh, was able to articulate the 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 plight um, in terms that 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 were clear as day, like there was no mistaking in in what the plight was. He also drew connections between the struggles within the global South and the African American struggles within within this country. I think that was, and he was also critical of capitalism itself as well. So why why did you decide to do this project where you were retracing the steps of uh, Malcolm X's life? Um, so it had a lot to do with where I was at the time in my life. Um, before I moved to Grand Rapids, where I live and teach, I lived in Boston, um, in Cambridge, right? Like, I could literally walk to Boston, though. Um, and I was so interested in learning about where I was living and the Black communities that were there as I was there, but before. Um, and I noticed how central Roxbury was. Um, it's a neighborhood, a Black neighborhood, just a few miles away from the downtown Boston area. How central it was to the East Coast culture, but also how central it was to the story of Black religion in the United States. Um, and it's where Malcolm X lived as a child. And so I wanted to trace out his life there Partly because of how we remember Malcolm is so much centered on Harlem. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important, but I think it's important for us to understand how spread out Islam is in the United States, especially Black Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, as I was doing this, I actually discovered that um, he has a childhood home there. He lived there with his older sister, Ella Little Collins, and is actually the last um, standing home from his childhood 
all of the other places have been raised. This one is still standing there. So I wanted to talk about that, but also talk about the changes that were happening in Roxbury um, and the greater Boston areas. Many of the places that Malcolm frequented and were important to his political or religious development no longer exist. Um, and a lot of that has to do with gentrification or quote unquote urban renewal um, and the role that universities in Boston have played in gentrifying black neighborhoods and erasing black history and culture. So I saw that part of the project is also available online as well uh, for people to see. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the ultimate goal is to create um, a walking tour app where people will be able to walk or drive to the 10 points on the map that I have so far. Um, so the first part of it is already up on Mizan um, Project, which is a website dedicated to um, Islam in the United States and beyond. And so it plots out 10 points. And um, in this first wave, I highlight three points that are really central to his development. Um, I'd take pictures from what those sites look like when Malcolm X uh, frequented them and then compare them to pictures of what they look like today. So for instance, um, the Roseland State Ballroom, he talks about that a lot in his autobiography where that's where he learned how to dance and he gained his appreciation for music and met many musicians um, who would be influenced by him. That is now the home of a CVS and high-rise apartments. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that would be, I think, yeah, putting that in a app form where people can actually experience that gentrification them, for themselves and see the importance of the land that they're walking on uh, would be, would be amazing. So that's, you said part of it is misanproject.org, correct? Yes. So the full map is up there with the 10 points, but I only have descriptions up so far, three of those points in detail. Oh. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, you know, your your main project uh, currently is um, on Black Muslim women's uh, fashion in particular. But, you know, I mean, um, this is just me personally. I grew up not very feminine. And then I sort of, um, I mean, after I became after I became more well-versed in feminist literature, I realized that, that I had sort of internalized forms of sexism within myself. But when I was growing up, I kind of took pride in not being feminine. You know, so fashion for me, I thought it was something that only vain people are concerned with. And that if you, you know, just are, uh, you should just be about the mind, right? So how did you become interested in fashion as an academic research enterprise? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I think for me, it comes from personal experience. Being Black um, in the Midwest, fashion is a huge deal. There's we have a thing in our family, we call ourselves doing a Julia, which is after my great grandmother, who was always dressed to the nines, no matter where she went. Um, and that's something that all of the women in our family have embraced and embodied. So you can't necessarily control your circumstances, whether that's like racism or sexism, but you can control how good you look. Mm -hmm. Um and that's something that I see a lot in Black Muslim communities, this idea that you should always look your best because it says something not only about you, but it says something about your community. Um, and when I first started doing this research about 
six, seven or eight years ago, I would get little scoffs and side eyes from academics saying this wasn't a real um, area of study. Um, but that's slowly been changing as more scholars have written pieces. So Liz Bukar has an amazing book called Pious Fashion. Um, Suad Abdul-Kabir has a book called Muslim Cool that looks at the history of hip hop um, mm -hmm. and race in the United States. And she talks about fashion there. And uh, what becomes very clear is that fashion is central for both um, self-identification, but also group unity. Um, and for Muslims, it's a real place where you see a battle over authenticity. So what does it mean to be a good Muslim? Uh, yeah. That usually means to look a certain way. And that way is often Arabized. Right, right. So I, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. Like, you know, what is this? What is this understanding of Islamic femininity that we even have? And and you're right, like it when we think of Islamic femininity, we think of a very Arabized, to use your term, um, or like this sort of Arab version femininity, uh, when we think of Islamic femininity. W would you say is that what you found when you when you started exploring uh, Islamic femininity, that naturally people went towards like this Arabic form of what femininity is? So I think that's what the general Muslim community, at least in the United States, when they talk about Muslim femininity, that's what they're meaning. So wearing the dark clothes, wearing um, your hijab styled in a certain way. But when you get into like local communities, so looking at Black American communities or Somali communities, you see that beauty um, and fashion and modesty are practice very, very differently. Mm -hmm. um, it's a way to not only highlight your religion, but your region, your race, your ethnicity. And I've been doing this research long enough where I can look at a Black woman's clothes and I can tell if she's from Philadelphia or if she's from Atlanta because there are these unique styles. Um, and I think Muslims themselves don't always do a good job of like highlighting how diverse Islam is. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not to our advantage to do that at all. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, actually, right before this, I had a student interviewing me and she kept um, about something uh, for a school, like for a class project, um, because I'm, I think, one of the few Muslim people on campus and a lot of students for their class projects have to interview me, I guess. <laughs> and she kept asking me in Islam, what is what what is, for example, she was like, what what is gender dynamic look like in Islam? And I, and I kept trying to explain to her there is no one monolithic Islam per se, you know, even within one socioeconomic status, one ethnicity, one race, like even like if you get super specific, you would see variations of what gender dynamics might look like within different households. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, people don't realize that Muslim communities are and beyond the cliche of like, oh, Muslims are not a monolithic um, group. There's just so much, uh, there's so much specificity within different, different communities of what to be Muslim looks like. For example, I'm, I myself, I'm Pakistani. And so when we have our religious functions and women dress up, they're dressing up and, and our community is mostly Pakistani slash Indian, some Indians, but mostly Pakistani. But even within that small Pakistani community, people dress up according to the region of Pakistan that they came from. And mm -hmm. that's difficult to explain to somebody that the style of dress might look the same, but it's drastically different depending on which region of Pakistan you bought your dress from. 
And not just region, age, marital status, like all these things, but we're just looking for the one thing, like, what does your scarf look like? <laughs> so true. So true, man. So, so uh, you know, when, when you say that Black Muslim women challenge this hegemonic understanding of Islamic femininity, what do you have in mind? Well, so I have in mind with... First of all, their rationales for dressing um, is many women I talk to will definitely say, you know, it's what God commands, give you um, passages from the Quran, um, although there are very few that specifically talk about women's dress. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the styling that they choose. So one thing that I've noticed in a lot of Black American communities, um, and part of this has to do with um, influence of the Nation of Islam and the Warf Dean Muhammad community, is a line for your neck or your ears to show or layering techniques that are very, very popular uh, now, especially you see it on YouTube where you'll have women wear skinny jeans underneath a dress or a skirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's about recognizing the need to create a unique um, and authentic aesthetic for this time and place. So drawing from an African um, heritage and a black American heritage and an American heritage to create something new and recognizing you don't have to go and follow what other people are doing just because they might be originally from a place that's closer to Mecca or Medina than black Americans are. So allowing black people's creativity to flow um, and really challenge the narrow readings of um, the Quran and Hadith that don't actually give that much detail about how a woman should dress. Yeah, I mean, the Quran is contrary to what many, I guess, ulama or um, clerics might say, is not that specific about about what modesty looks like. It tells us to be modest, but it's um, it's open to culture and um and time and place and so on and so forth. Now I'm not. I shouldn't. I shouldn't even say I'm not active on social media. I'm some more or less absent uh, from uh, Twitter and Instagram and such. But uh, what do Black Muslim designers and stylists and, and you know people who influence fashions? Um, how do they see fashion? How does fashion manifest itself on these uh, on these various platforms? So sadly, one thing that I've noticed is that the most popular influencers, especially on YouTube and Instagram, are not actually Black women. Um, They're non-Black women who appropriate Black aesthetics. So whether that's the um, scarf styles they wear, like the um, bun or the side kind of ponytail scarf, or even the layering techniques they use for their clothes. Um, So what I have seen Black Muslim women do is build community with other Black women um, and use this space to highlight the long history of Black women in fashion, not just in the United States, but other parts of the diaspora and the continent, Um, and also perform types of activism. So looking at the fact that a lot of these fashion shows, uh, when they invite Muslim women to come, they usually only invite non-Black Muslim women. So using social media as a platform to call out the anti-Blackness that you find both in the Islamic fashion industry, as well as just like mainstream North American fashion. So one thing that you just described was a side bun hijab type thing. Is that is that uh, something close to uh, what Ilhan Omar sometimes has? So Ilhan Omar, she wears the turban a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so that comes not just from Black American, but you find that in the African continent as well. Um, and so that's drawn from her mixed background as being Somali, living in um, Kenya, but then also living in Minnesota. So having that cultural context of different interactions with different types of Black Muslims. Right. And how do you make sure that Black Muslim Americans um, do get that platform um, or do get that credit for the culture that comes from them? I think part of it has to do um, with the non-Black Muslim influencers. Um, They need to ask why they are being invited. Um, Bring Mm -hmm. Black Muslims with them uh, if they're the only ones who get the invitation. Sometimes it's going to mean stepping aside and saying, you know what, I would love to do this, but here are some Black women who I draw from. And it could be as simple as in um, their Instagram posts and their YouTube um, videos, letting it be known that they're drawing from this other culture that is just as authentic um, as their own culture. Right. I think the thing about appropriation that I often find quite harmful is the profiting off somebody else's culture, especially without credit, but mostly profiting off somebody else's culture. So because a lot of times people are like, well, I really like that part of that culture. Why can't I do it? Um, And well, first, if there is a cultural or religious significance to why they do that, and you don't identify with that significance, then there's a problem there. But then the other element is, is that if you are earning off of that, like you uh, earn money on on Twitter or on you know or Instagram, because you have that status on social media and you're profiting off somebody else's culture. Uh, there's definitely something problematic uh, there. Uh, And I think there's something even more problematic that you are willing to profit off, but still occupy your moral, righteous, you know, high ground that I'm the authentic Muslim somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, you take the good, but you don't take all of the negativity, the oppression that comes with being a black person. Uh, So there's not a history of understanding why Black people might have created these stress practices in the first place. Um, And I've seen a few um, non-Black Muslim influencers, they'll talk about how they don't want to look too Muslim one day, so they'll wear a turban. And through wearing a turban, they face less Islamophobia because they're light-skinned and they can pass as white. Um, Where there's no, I don't know, at least not publicly, they're not recognizing the privilege of being able to turn on and turn off your otherness. Mm -hmm. Um, Black women, Muslim, whether they cover or not, still have to deal with anti-Black racism and they can't ever opt out of that. Right, right. That's, yeah, that is such an important point. Yeah, so just if you're going to borrow from the culture or take the culture, you need to be down for the struggles with those cultures. Definitely, definitely. So when can we look forward to uh, to your book? Uh, I guess that's a bad question, actually. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully my potential editor does not hear this. So the goal would be the final project, the final book would be done by the end of the year. So then I guess next year for publishing. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. I'm, I'm seriously looking forward to it. I think this is a much needed topic. Um, and uh, something that I myself need to uh, need to read up on and learn more about, for sure. And uh, it's super wonderful that somebody as 
awesomely accomplished as as you is working on this uh, on this much needed uh, gap in our knowledge. Well, thank you so much, Kayla, for doing this uh, and coming on to this podcast and sharing uh, so much of your knowledge with us. Thank you so much. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam. <laughs>